This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. At the ripe age of 40, Tom Brady doesn't seem to be showing any signs of wanting to retire soon. He's won five Super Bowls with the Patriots, the last one against the Falcons this past February. And if Brady does indeed play into the age of 45, as he says he plans to, he expects to win a few more Lombardi trophies along the way. Still, if you watched this last Super Bowl, you saw cracks in his game. The interceptions, the rushed plays, the fact that it took a -a once-in-a-lifetime comeback for Brady to secure his most recent trophy. But the way Tom Brady sees it, it's all a matter of following this system. This fall, he released a book called The TB12 Method, How to Achieve a Lifetime of Peak Performance. It's part self-health, it's part exercise, but it's a book that Tom Brady sees as the culmination of the work it takes not just to win big games, but frankly, win at life. In this week's episode, Seth Wickersham and Tom Juneau dive into the TB12 Method and what Brady's lifestyle movement tells us about the quarterback's hopes for career longevity and, perhaps, cultural immortality. Also, how exactly does a quarterback-turned-lifestyle guru plan on prolonging his football life when he plays for a coach who builds championships by knowing exactly when to get rid of players who think they are indispensable? Before we get into all of that, a little housekeeping note, as always— If you enjoy listening to Double Truck Stories, do us a favor and subscribe to the show wherever it is you listen to all your favorite podcasts. Join me after the story today as Seth and Tom stop by to talk about why immortality isn't a joke to Tom Brady. And now, here's Tom Brady's Most Dangerous Game, written by Tom Junone and Seth Wickersham. Tom Brady's Most Dangerous Game by Tom Juno and Seth Wickersham It happened all at once, the way it happens to boxers. He had been baited into throwing a pass to the wrong man, and suddenly he stood exposed, with not only the play, but nature itself turning against him. His teammates seemed to have disappeared. He was the last man in position to stop the wrong man, from running all the way down the field and turning the game into a rout. He tried his best, as he always does, but he was alone against a younger, faster opponent. And when he dove, he missed by a foot rather than by an inch and appeared simply to fall down in pieces. Even those who root against him might then have pitied him, because it was one of those moments when the essence of sport is revealed to be cruelly and coldly biological. Tom Brady, in the course of throwing a pick-six to Robert Alford of the Falcons in the second quarter of Super Bowl 51, had grown old. Later, in the fourth quarter, Brady threw another pass over the middle to Alford. It was worse than the pick-six. Brady wasn't tricked. He was forcing the ball into traffic with the game on the line, This time, though, Alford didn't catch it. This time the ball caromed off his fingertips, still in play. It went up, came down, and Brady's intended receiver, Julian Edelman, leaped for it. He grabbed at it, but then so did gravity, and the ball fell toward the ground. 
but it didn't land on the ground. It landed on a trivet of Alford's splayed legs and Ricardo Allen's outstretched arms, and Edelman got his hands under it in one of those moments when the essence of sport is revealed to be cosmic. By the measure of a vibrating inch, Tom Brady had overturned the verdict of time. The oldest story in sports is not an athlete dying young. The oldest story in sports is an athlete getting old and playing past his prime, somehow hoping to avoid the inevitable. In September, Tom Brady released a book titled The TB12 Method, How to Achieve a Lifetime of Peak Performance, in which he attempts to rewrite the oldest story in sports. It is a brief against the inevitable, irresistible not because it supplies its readers with their own blueprint for beating the clock or because it provides access to the teachings of Brady's fitness advisor and business partner, Alex Guerrero, but rather because Brady is living his method. And we don't know how his story ends. Of course, we know how he wants it to end. In an interview with ESPN the day after the Patriots played the Falcons in a mid-October Super Bowl rematch, he says, I want to play for a long time as if he were at the start of his career rather than near the end. Indeed, the 18-year veteran said this year that he wants to play until he's 45. He wants to win a couple of more Super Bowls, so his already unprecedented career is impossible to replicate. But his on-the-field ambitions might be a mere prelude to what he wants to achieve off the field because the TB12 method captures a man attempting to transform himself from a transcendent figure in sports to a transcendent figure in the culture. Brady declares that he is on a mission and wants to inspire a movement, that his movement is about something he calls pliability, muscles trained to become long, soft, and primed instead of short, dense, and stiff, is less telling than the moral case he makes for it. Pliability is not just for elite athletes, he writes. It's for anyone who wants to live a vital life for as long as possible. The method is not of the locker room. Instead, it reflects the values of a global elite for which human longevity is human destiny, and of which Brady and his wife, Giselle Bunchen are members in good standing. There is just one catch to all of this. To transcend football, Brady has to keep playing it. He has made himself a test case. The test case for the ideas that form the foundation of TB12, his brand. If you want proof that pliability and the TB12 method works, I'm it, he writes. He doesn't just want to play until he's 45. He has to play until he's 45. Or else he's not Tom Brady, architect of the impossible. Up against aging, injury, and possibly the inscrutable long-range plans of his future Hall of Fame coach Bill Belichick, Brady is playing a dangerous game within a dangerous game, and before he transcends football, he has to manage a feat almost as rare and unlikely. He has to survive it, with his body, his brain, and his dignity intact. On the Week 7 night when the Patriots and Falcons meet, New England enters the game at 4-2, and two, in a 2017 season distinguished by its rate of attrition across the NFL, with elite player after elite player finding talent, no protection from injury. Brady himself has acknowledged how often he's been hit as the season has worn on. He is said to be playing with an aching left shoulder, and when, early in the game, he moves out of the pocket and throws deep to a receiver, 
the past finds its fluttering way once again into the hands of Robert Alford. But then Brady gets a reprieve. As he let go of the ill-fated ball, he was hit hard and high, and in the context of the 2017 season, yet again, by the Falcons' Adrian Claiborne. Claiborne is called for roughing the passer. Two plays later, Brady proves what every coach in the NFL already knows, that he is a man who makes the most of second chances, and tosses a touchdown pass to Brandon Cooks. The route is on, with a pass thrown to Alford once again emblematic of the smiling face of fortune in Brady's career, except for this. He won a reprieve from an errant throw. He did not win a reprieve from another hard shot to his head. Take a look at him at the Boston Convention Center back in June. He is sharing a stage with two friends, Edelman and Tony Robbins, at one of Robbins's motivational extravaganzas. It is four months after Brady's fifth Super Bowl win, a day after the conclusion of the Patriots' minicamp, and he looks as relaxed as it is possible for him to look, his crisp denim shirt open over his clean white tee. When Robbins, smiling toothily in his headset, leads the crowd in rhythmic clapping, Brady gamely claps along. He is wearing his own headset, smiling his own toothy smile, and he appears for all the world to be an aging athlete doing what aging athletes have always done, trying to find a way off the field by turning himself into a salesman. Now take another look, keeping something very important in mind. He is Tom frickin' Brady, and so he is no more a standard-issue jock-turned-pitchman than he is a standard-issue NFL quarterback. Sure, he has something to sell, the TB12 method, and all its associated paraphernalia, from a $250 resistance band kit to a $200 cookbook, but he is not just hawking his wares. He is trying to start a movement. And so Robbins and Edelman are on hand not simply as friends, or even as comrades in arms. Robbins is a mentor, a glimpse of what Brady wants to become. Edelman is a disciple, an initiate into the mysteries of the TB12 method. And the three men seated on stage and rhythmically clapping, represent a tableau of belief, even when Robbins asks Brady about the minicamp. I walked off the field at practice and thought, I am the worst quarterback in the NFL, Brady says. How could I have possibly made those throws? How could I be so dumb to do that? He smiles impeccably. If it's not perfect for me, I lose sleep. It is hard to believe him when he talks like this but he makes it hard to disbelieve him because there is no way to explain his career without resorting to the inexplicable, and because he so clearly believes the unbelievable to the bottom of his soul. No matter what he happens to say, he means every word. He tells Robbins' audience the story of how he came to the Patriots as the 199th player in the 2000 NFL Draft, with no one but him believing he had a chance to replace Drew Bledsoe as the starting quarterback. It is not just a story he has told many times before. It is the only story he has ever told. Yet the audience is rapt because the people know there's a miracle at the end. So take one more look at him as he tells of how his belief in himself was tested by struggle and then hardened into an implacable will and of how that will now finds its perfect expression in the creation of the TB12 method. It is one month after Bunshin told the world her husband has a history of undiagnosed concussions, including one he suffered last season. 
When Robbins asks Brady why he created TB12, he answers that he has been motivated by watching his idols fall. Joe Montana had to retire because his body didn't hold up, he says. Steve Young had to retire because he kept getting head injuries. Brady seems to imply that he can somehow avoid their fates by a rigorous practice of the TB12 method. And now, in his book, he states outright that the responsibility for injury rests in part with the injured. When athletes get injured, they shouldn't blame their sport or their age, he writes. Injuries happen when our bodies are unable to absorb or disperse the amount of force placed on them. He is challenging himself to accomplish feats unprecedented and miracles untold, and he is defending the game of football with the determination of a man defending his own legacy. His message is unmistakable. Football helps those who help themselves. There's always this baseline balance for me to find before every game, Brady says in an interview after the Falcons game. Really, our goal with the book that I wrote was to describe all of those things. I've been doing it for so long, it's not hard for me to understand. It's very simple, and it's probably more frustrating that more people don't just understand it. The TB12 method is Brady's first real book, but there is little surprise in the fact that it doesn't take the form of a memoir, an autobiography, or a tell-all, that it isn't even really about Brady. Never in the business of self-revelation, he reveals nothing in his book except that he is very much in the business of Tom Brady. Still, the TB12 method is an exercise in unintentional self-disclosure. The man who gazes at us from the book's cover is a fair-skinned Californian who, after spending the better part of his life in the elements, has somehow acquired nary a line or wrinkle. Not a scar, nor even, for that matter, a freckle. It is not so much that he looks young as that he refuses to look old. When his wife mentioned his concussions, she did so once and never again, and Brady has batted away questions about long-term neurological effects as none of your business. The word concussion never appears in the TB12 method. The phrase brain injuries does, but only when Brady is talking about techniques to get ahead and stay ahead of them, especially in the off-season. He answers questions about concussions by saying that his body is none of your business, even as he begins to build a business around his body. It has become customary to think of Brady as an athlete without limits, one who overturns expectation by refusing to concede an inch to anyone else's idea of the inevitable. But the TB12 method offers a portrait of a ferociously limited human being, albeit the world's most hydrated one. Every day, he wakes up at six in the morning, and immediately drinks 20 ounces of purified water, augmented with TB12 electrolytes, which, as he tells us, contain the 72 trace minerals generally lost in perspiration. As a result, he says, he is so well hydrated that even with adequate exposure to the sun, I won't get sunburned, and he presumes that the muscles under his skin look like beautiful tenderloins instead of shriveled jerky. He trains about four hours a day, and on most days he does pliability with Guerrero, who, with hands capable of generating 50 newtons of force in a single finger, about 11 pounds, applies targeted pressure to Brady's muscles. On the rare occasions when I don't have the benefit of working with Alex, he either does partner pliability or goes solo with a jar of coconut oil he applies himself and a TB12 vibrating sphere. 
He eats abstemiously, with few portion sizes bigger than the palm of his hand, but also with a purpose to maintain the alkalinity of his body. And he sleeps in the same determinedly therapeutic fashion, repairing to bed at nine each night in a room uncontaminated by either technology or pet dander. He keeps a glass of water by his bedside and sleeps famously in TB12 bioceramic recovery wear, which is also for sale from TB12 and which Brady also considers part of a movement, the tech-enabled apparel and sleepwear movement. Last year, he writes, he was so pleased with how he was throwing at a workout that I remember thinking, my ability to sustain my peak performance over the past ten years is almost unbelievable to me. With his oxygen-rich blood and his muscles firing at 100%, he can now afford to say, I rarely get fatigued, I never get headaches, and I never cramp. He all but pronounces himself invulnerable. He is not one of them, the irreparably damaged players we've come to pity even as we root them on. I can recover from Sunday's game significantly faster than players who may be 10 or 15 years younger than me, he writes. But the stakes are even larger, and the odds even longer than that, because Brady seems to be asking his readers to acknowledge not simply that he can recover, but that he is unscathed, as if he were not playing in Sunday's games at all. In fact, two years ago, I took a hit on my knee during a practice, requiring an MRI. The doctors who read the MRI joked afterward that my knee looked so healthy, they seriously doubted I played professional football. Brady writes, Sustained peak performance isn't about luck, and claims that much of the success I've been lucky enough to have in my career I owe to a lifelong will-over-skill mindset. However, if Alford had caught the ball Brady threw to him instead of Edelman, or if the ball had followed its natural course and fallen to the turf instead of being held up by a thicket of arms and legs, or if Pete Carroll had just handed the ball to Marshawn Lynch in Super Bowl forty-nine we might be having an entirely different conversation about Tom Brady. He wouldn't be an immortal, and instead of talking about the efficacy of the TB12 method in prolonging prime performance, we'd be shaking our heads about another NFL great reduced to chasing his own coast. Brady didn't only get good against Seattle and Atlanta, he also got lucky. Luck has not always gone his way. David Tyree ended Brady's dream of an undefeated 2007 season when he caught Eli Manning's desperate heave against his helmet, a catch at least as improbable as Edelman's. And at the start of 2008, Brady tore two ligaments in his left knee, an injury so severe there were doubts about his ability to recover. When he suffered complications from surgery, he hired Guerrero, with whom he had worked in the past, to find a better way. Now Brady credits Guerrero's genius. He hugs him when he sees him, and he calls him Alejandro. He overlooked issues in Guerrero's past. Guerrero paid a judgment to the Federal Trade Commission to settle charges that he claimed dietary supplements could help cure cancer, and went into business with him. He also brought teammates into his TB12 fold, mostly converting a circle of players that includes Danny Amendola, Dante Hightower, Rob Gronkowski, and, of course, Edelman. To what extent does Brady now think he controls his fate? The moment another player's helmet makes contact with my body, my muscles are pliable enough to absorb what's happening instantly, he writes.
My brain is thinking only lengthen and soften and disperse before my body absorbs and disperses the impact evenly, and I hit the ground. Or, more simply, as he puts it in an interview, I know my focus on pliability has helped me avoid so many injuries and bounce back so quickly from hits. Yet, he remains an NFL player, and for any NFL player, the cruel whims of the game are not restricted to what happens on the field, especially when he's a New England Patriot and plays for a man with a formidable method of his own. Bill Belichick is the coldest decision-maker the game has ever known. He is a virtuoso strategist, but the essence of the Belichick method is not only about plays, but also about personnel and knowing the earliest possible moment to let go of players who make the mistake of thinking they're indispensable. For the better part of two decades, Brady has stood as the exemplar of the Belichick method, the coldest quarterback for the coldest coach. But he has also stood as its test, a question that one day Belichick would have to answer, the ultimate inevitability of his and Brady's careers. Belichick appeared to have come up with his answer in 2014, when, in Brady's own words, the youth had worn off and the quarterback was still trying to adjust his game after five years of postseason struggle. Smart defensive coaches had started challenging him, clogging the middle of the field in order to force him to throw outside. In 2013, Brady's yards per attempt had fallen to 6.92, his lowest since 2006, and he completed only 17 of 68 throws beyond 20 yards. We gotta be able to throw downfield, Belichick said, according to people on his staff, and though Brady working with Guerrero, was already starting to talk about playing into his 40s, prompting eye-rolls from some Patriots staffers. That wasn't the question that consumed New England personnel evaluators. The question was whether his skills were in irrevocable decline, and in the 2014 draft, Belichick seemed to come up with an answer by drafting Jimmy Garoppolo in the second round, the first signal that he was personally invested in a future that did not include Tom Brady, and that the Belichick method would never give way to mere sentiment. The Chiefs drubbed the Patriots on Monday night early in the 2014 season, and Brady played so poorly, so creakily, that talk turned to whether he was, at long last, finished. A few days later, Belichick asked running backs coach Ivan Fears to speak to the team. Fears spoke about the importance of attitude, then turned to Brady and, with the entire team looking on, said, your body language reeks of fear. In response, Brady did what Brady does. He willed himself to get better. He says he doesn't remember fears saying that to him, but he will always remember the necessity at that moment for mental toughness. It's an attitude adjustment, he says. Not ever being satisfied. Things obviously have not been easy for me in my career. What ensued over the next three seasons was arguably the greatest sustained performance by an aging athlete in the eternal history of athletes growing old, a performance so consummate that it convinced Brady that, thanks to the TB12 method, he wasn't really aging at all. Brady credited Guerrero for keeping his body intact, and Guerrero credited himself, but the Patriots credited adjustments Brady had made to his game. He wasn't too proud to throw the ball into the dirt at the first sign of danger, and he wasn't getting hit as much. And when the team saw how fresh his arm was at the end of the 2016 season that began with his serving a four-game suspension, 
Talk among the coaches turned to the question that will follow Brady as long as he plays. Can he do 16 games again? Belichick is seeking to secure an immortality of his own. No one knows how much longer he'll coach, but his friends give him two or three more years, enough to ensure that his two sons, Stephen and Brian, both Patriots' assistants, are secure and possibly long enough to establish a truly dynastic succession. He told friends for the past year that he wanted to coach Garoppolo as a starter and that he was confident he could win a Super Bowl with him. That, of course, would have required him to decouple himself from the player who has changed his life and his legacy, and so the question always was, would he do it? Would he actually move on from TB12? On the night of October 30th, that question was answered, for now at least, when he traded Garoppolo to the San Francisco 49ers for a second-round pick. The trade came out of nowhere, surprising people close to Belichick, Brady, and Garoppolo. But while it's easy to see the move as a demonstration that Brady is and always will be the one exception to the Belichick method, it instead serves as confirmation that the method will always win. Did Belichick trade his backup out of loyalty to a 40-year-old quarterback, or because cutting bait at exactly the right time is what he always does and always will do? For the short term, Brady will find himself in the position of being the future of the Patriots, with no end in sight. The Garoppolo trade can be seen as an expression of faith not only in Brady, but also in the TB12 method. The apparent vote of confidence comes even as Brady has found himself in the middle of a conflict between the Patriots and Guerrero, with Guerrero blaming the team's trainers for injuries some of his clients have suffered, and with Belichick making it resoundingly clear that Guerrero has no actual role on his staff. There's a collision coming, a friend of Belichick says, and even without Garoppolo itching to supplant him, Brady is aware of the competing legacies at the heart of the Patriots' historic success. He says now that he hopes he doesn't play for anyone else. But I'm also not naive to think I can't. And Brady is not the only one to have written a book. At the end of his 2005 collaboration with David Halberstam, The Education of a Coach, Belichick makes a case for luck as a prerequisite for greatness and uses Brady as the prime example. When Brady was suspended at the beginning of 2016, Garoppolo took his place, in an echo of the start of Brady's career. But there is only one Brady. Garoppolo played well, but for either a want of luck or willpower, he lasted only five and a half quarters before being knocked out with a shoulder injury and eventually giving way to Tom Brady and the method. One day last year, the two scientists whose company created the software product Brain HQ were surprised by a phone call that came to their office in San Francisco. It was Alex Guerrero, telling them Tom Brady was using the brain exercises they'd been developing, and they were surprised for a couple of reasons. First, Brady wanted to meet them. And second, he was not using the exercises in ways for which they were intended. We improve people who need improvement, says Henry Monka, CEO of Posit Science. Old people people who've suffered cognitive damage, but not a guy at the top of his game using our exercises to get better. So Monka and Posit Science founder Michael Merznick flew to Boston and visited Brady and Guerrero at the TB12 training center. The first thing that was pretty wild was that they had a personal team of neuroscientists, Monka says, 
And we're like, this is the kind of thing you can do when you're the greatest quarterback of all time. But what he told us was pretty striking. He said, I'm at the point where I want to be the best in every possible way. I came across the exercises in popular science, and I can already see the difference in my brain function. This kind of brain training is like physical conditioning. It can help anyone. That's just not how we thought of brain training before, Monka says. If you have bad cognitive function, we can help you. But Tom was using the same exercises that people in much worse condition use. We didn't have to change the science at all. He was just using them at a totally different level. Did Brady decide to engage in brain training because he felt himself on the verge of rising to a new level, or because he felt himself falling behind as a consequence of trauma already suffered? Monka didn't know. He had never asked. But he wanted to make one thing clear. I talked to Tom a bunch, and this might surprise you, but he never talks about concussions. At all. But the question holds, because either Tom Brady is a football player who, like other football players, has suffered multiple concussions, or he is a football player who, unlike most other football players, has found a way to rise above the game's inherent assault on body and brain. It is not only his wife who says he is the former. Many Broncos believe they noticed him in an all-too-recognizable daze during the 2015 AFC Championship game. Yet he not only speaks in his book of his determination to stay ahead of brain injuries, he speaks unsparingly of those who let injuries get ahead of them. Famous for being unforgiving of himself when he makes mistakes, he turns out to be unforgiving of players who make the mistake of getting injured. If our bodies can handle the force, it doesn't matter what sport we play or how old we are. That's why age isn't my problem. He has little sympathy for anyone whose experience might contradict the overarching TB12 narrative. Players say the biggest reason for early retirement is their fear of the long-term effects of playing while injured. I don't have that fear. They have no idea they can have a body or a career free of the pain that athletes of the past have endured. By the end of the TB12 method, he is not even talking about injuries, trauma, or even sport. He is professing his faith that we can decelerate the aging process as most people experience it today. As an athlete, he is already an immortal, but he begins to emerge as an immortalist, too someone convinced that the answer to the question he poses near the close of the book, what does it mean to naturally age, is that aging is unnatural and not to be accepted without a fight. It sounds grandiose, but after the Falcons' rematch, he puts the fight in a humble context. The reality for me is not how long I want to live, but the quality of life. I love playing football. I love everything about it. I want to do it for a long time. And at the end of that, I still want to do all the things I love to do. And that's what it's about for me. It's about doing what I love to do for as long as I'm here. You can't take any of these days for granted. But I also want to do what I have to do to prevent long-term damage to my body playing sports. Afterward, I still want to be able to ski, to surf, and do the things I love to do. I still want to be able to throw the ball around with my kids and play soccer in the backyard and have fun in life. It's not that Brady wants what no one else has. He wants what everyone else has or thinks they have. 
He toys with the notion of immortality because, as a human being who has played nearly 300 games in the NFL, his mortality is demonstrably accelerated and actuarially advanced. To do a job for as long as he loves and to stay whole, it doesn't seem like much to ask. But then again, it is asking for the world. Of course, Belichick and the Patriots are also asking the world of Brady. They are not only committing to a 40-year-old quarterback. They, with the Garoppolo trade, have blocked Brady's simplest means of a graceful exit. He has decided not to stop. Now, he also can't fail. What would count as a failure for Tom Brady? Playing until he's 41 instead of playing until he's 45? Never winning another Super Bowl? Getting released at age 43 from the Patriots and spending the last days of his career hobbling around for the Browns? Still angry that they took Spurgeon win in the sixth round of the 2000 draft instead of him? Or getting all he wants, playing until he's 45 and winning two more Super Bowls, only to discover 15 years later that he has recurring headaches and his memory is hazy and he can't follow the route to the nearest TB12 training center. None of these scenarios is far-fetched, and none of these scenarios is inevitable. And the scenario that probably scares him the most, the one in which, for all his investment in brain training and bioceramic sleepwear, he ends up just another athlete staying on a little too long and getting out a little too late, is the most likely. He is so accustomed to thinking in terms of the impossible that he often forgets to think in terms of the probable and he's so intent on thinking in terms of willpower that he misses the simple power inherent in accepting one's fate. People do run out of luck, especially on the football field. And with the method, he defines unavoidable occurrences in his sport as failures and risks making failures of his teammates and his friends. So let's go back to Tom Brady throwing a pass to Julian Edelman. This time, they're not playing for high stakes in the Super Bowl. This time, they're playing for no stakes at all, in a preseason game against Detroit. Edelman lines up in his familiar place in the slot. He dances upfield, then catches a ball Brady throws over the middle. It's an ageless play run by two men who have made ageless plays their business. Then three lions close in. Edelman tries to do the impossible. He tries to evade them all. And when he pivots left, his right knee gives out, extending so unnaturally that it snaps him into the air with the force of a slingshot. He falls to the ground and rolls over, clutching his knee, in an agony of ruin, knowing his season is over. By Brady's logic, the injury could not have been a matter of luck. There is no luck. It could not have been the game. Don't blame the game. It has to be a failure of pliability. What will happen when an athlete with tight, dense, stiff muscles runs and makes a sharp cut, he writes? If these functions overload a muscle, bone, tendon, or ligament, he will get injured. But here's the problem. Edelman practices pliability. He certainly gets some deep-force muscle work, Brady says. How then can Edelman have failed? But then something else happens. Over the course of the season... Even as Brady maintains an MVP-level form, others go down, all members of the pliability circle. Hightower with a knee issue and a pectoral tear. 
Amendola with a concussion, Gronk with a groin problem. Brady himself has an aching shoulder. But he not only keeps showing up, he keeps prevailing, left alone with his method, his singular talent and his unflagging determination. The game might never beat TB12, but it will do its best to make him the last man standing. Welcome back. That was Tom Brady's Most Dangerous Game by Tom Juneau and Seth Wickersham. Both are with me now on the show. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Justin. So, reading or listening to this piece, uh, the one thing that started to stick out to me, did this start with the book or or something else in terms of the, the, the genesis of this story? It started with the uh, March NFL Idea Summit. And, <laughs> as, all, as everything does. Yeah. And, you know, basically um, the idea was to, um, like, like, what could we write about Tom Brady? You know, is, is there another way to write about Tom Brady? And I just, I just um, you know, I'm always fascinated by, you know, sort of larger-than-life figures but you know but but tom is that larger than life figure that's always you know remained remote and almost smaller than life and what we and what we know about him and so i just i had an idea which was that i i didn't think that he just wanted to play until he was 45 i, I thought he might actually want to live forever because uh, I've been doing a lot of reading on, you know, rich people who thought they, <laughs> they could extend their lifespans. And so it just began with that. And then amazingly, the the book com- comes out and kind of confirms all of the hunches that Seth and I had. Seth, you and I were just talking before we started the show. Um, I mean, w- was the book surprising in any way? You've written about Brady and, and the Patriots quite a bit. Was the things that he outlined in the in the book surprising at all about uh, a Tom and his philosophy? Definitely, because it was Tom unlike we'd ever heard him. And even though it was a lifestyle and fitness book, it was an incredibly revealing thing. And I think that it was one of the things that Tom Juneau and I sort of knew going in was that this thing is going to say a lot about him. It's not an autobiography, but it's going to be autobiographical. And, you know... Tom is a very earnest person. Let's just put it that way. You know, um, you know, we, we asked him, uh, you know, so much of the book is about, you know, drinking so much water and, and getting <laughs> great night's sleep. And those things aren't congruent. And so we, uh, we, the, one of our first questions to him was, you know, how often do you have to go to the bathroom at night? And, you know, Peyton Manning would have, Peyton Manning would have slammed that one out of the park, you know, and Tom, you know, gave a very earnest answer about, you know, staggering your intake and not forcing your body to under, undergo too much change at once. And, oh my God. you know, yeah. um, but I think that the, 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 the Tom Brady that emerged from that book is different than anything we'd ever seen before because of his certainty in his methodology. I mean, he literally says that football players have no idea that they can have a career that's pain free. And that is one of the most radical statements about football that has ever been made. Especially now, you know, I mean, and that's, that I think is, is one of the, 
the really, um, you know, kind of the shocks of, of reading the book is that, you know, basically I think that he, um, it's a book against orthodoxy when it comes to football, when it comes to the inevitability of pain and, uh, and the inevitability of injury and especially the inevitability of brain trauma. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it felt like the two of you had to keep bringing that up, specifically concussions and brain trauma, because it feels like it's something that he was almost actively avoiding in this book. And for somebody who's talking so much about longevity and, the, and prolonging their career, if not, you know, immor- reaching for immortality, um, you know, why do you think he didn't he didn't want to get into that issue? <laughs> I think that his feeling at this point in his career is that he is going to have a post-football life that bears no scars of a football player. Oh and I think that that's what he believes. And, um, you know, he the fact that he doesn't talk about he, the word concussions is never in the book. Um, head trauma is. Uh, but, you know, there is no um, serious weight dedicated to that issue and you know again the braggadocioness of the book is that you know he plans on living a life as if he never played football and i think that that to me is one of the most fascinating aspects of this because if he plays as long as he wants to play he might have 400 some nfl games under his belt and we've never seen what that does to somebody down the road and that's why it's a dangerous game within a dangerous game that he's playing. Yeah, and I think I think that the the reason he doesn't men, mention it is because I don't think he wants to give it any weight. I mean, I think think that so much of the book is just a statement of will, and I don't think that he wants to acknowledge anything that might impinge upon that or compromise that. Right. It's pure. I mean, the book, the book is, I mean, yeah, it's a workout book, but in its own way, it's a manifesto. Well, I wanted to get at, what do you think is the central tension in, in creating this story? Because it seems like there's a couple of things. One, which we're talking about in a little bit, which is Brady and the collision course with Belichick and his beliefs, both of their beliefs. Um, but putting that aside, I mean, when you two were working on this, like, what did you see as the tension in, in this piece? I think it was obvious. He wants. Yeah. I'm. I'm sorry. No. No. Um, To me. To me, he wants to. He wants to transcend football. But the catch is that in order to transcend football, he has to keep playing football. And anyone who keeps playing football is going to be, you know, vulnerable to the injuries that football routinely hands out. That's insane. That's insane. Uh, So the two of you working together on this as a tandem. How did you uh, attack the reporting on this? You know, what, what ways did you guys sort of figure out who was going to do what? Um, you know, I think we just sort of played to our strengths. You know, Tom made calls. I made calls. We both made um, a trip together to, to Boston. Um, you know, we both came up with our questions for Brady together. Um, and, you know, I think that the thing that uh, I enjoyed about it was that, you know, Tom had never really written about Brady, whereas this is maybe my sixth story in 17 years on Brady and I think that like what worked was able was being able to combine a little bit of like institutional knowledge a lot of things that I just you know 
had forgotten, you know, that sort of come out in this context. Right. And, you know, Tom looking at it um, from a literally a global perspective. Right. Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, the thing that, that Seth um, brought to the story was, was you know, knowledge of the NS, NFL, knowledge of the Patriots, institutional knowledge that um, is, to me, you know, unsurpassed. And I didn't, you know, I couldn't, I didn't have that. And I had a, I had a thesis and I had an argument, but Seth had a lot of, a lot of the, the, um, the nuts and bolts that brought it to life. So in terms of the reporting, one scene that I, I was really fascinated by and really dug was the self-help seminar with Tony Robbins and, and Julian Edelman. Um, I'm curious who went to that and, in, in going to an event like that, what are you hoping to get out of it? Um, I attended via YouTube. We did not, <laughs> we, we did, we did not um, attend that. Um, in fact, I mean, from, from the start until nearly the end, we had no access to, to Brady at all. Oh, wow. um, toward the end, it's, that started, that started uh, easing up the lack of access. But in the beginning, you know, we were, we had, um, this idea and that, you know, that we wanted to, to bring to life. And, you know, we looked for things where Brady actually would speak about the, the things that we were interested in. And kind of amazingly from, from, you know, looking at the Robin seminar online to reading the book, I mean, all the stuff that we were interested in, in his way, he's interested in. I mean, he this this is what his life is about right now. Is, is you know basically is is beating this game. How can you how can you beat football? And you know that's what makes the the central tension of it. So, tell me a little bit about trying to get access to Tom in this case. Uh, it sounds like it opened up a little bit later on in the story. Obviously, you want him to be a participant in this. Um, what was the pushback and what were you able to get? Um, I don't know. You know, I think that, you know, Tom is somebody that I've known for a long time and, you know, our professional relationship has um, been mostly good, but, you know, occasionally hasn't liked everything that I've written. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, finally we're, you know, ready to finish the story. And, you know, we thought that, you know, and give him one more chance to sort of see if he wants to talk here. And he said that he would answer questions if we emailed them to him. So what we did was he, we, you know, we just, we drew off of the book like we do in the story. And, you know, this is one of the most, I don't know if I've ever written a story where the central character's voice is in it so much, you know, it's in it, not only it's drawn, not only from the text of the book, yeah, but also from our interview with him. And it's also interesting in a way because you have, him explaining and at some time, you know, even at some time sort of, um, you know, adding further context to the things that he, the very powerful and strong statements that he said in the book. Seth, how many drafts do you think we did of this story? I've tried to forget that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, okay, I'll, I'll answer that question. We did a lot of drafts of yeah. the story and, you know, Basically, I mean, we started we started writing this piece, I think, in August, and basically it began. I mean, the first draft was just like, 
okay, what do we have? What can we possibly say? The second, the second draft was sort of a pure essay on, you know, Tom Brady and the challenge of playing and living forever. And then all the succeeding drafts um, changed basically in relation to access. I mean, the third, the third draft, you know, was really the, the, the sort of the breakthrough one because by that time we had the book. And then, you know, by the end, we actually had, you know, um, you know, carried on a conversation with Brady. And so it just, the closer we got, it would demand a certain amount of, you know, revision and rethinking. And, you know, I think that we, uh, it was definitely uh, a journey, but, you know, we came, we came pretty close, I think, to what we imagined in the very beginning. And Seth, I, I asked you this before when you came on to talk about um, the Anthem story with Don, but the process of writing in this case, how did you guys handle that? Just sort of working on graphs, sending drafts, like all, sending all of these drafts back and forth. What was the process there? Yeah. You, you know, it was, it was an enlightening process because, you know, Tom is one of my writing heroes. And so um, there's definitely been times in my, my 17 year career that I have had a, a thought or a piece of reporting and thought, man, what would, what would Tom do with this one? And I found out, <laughs> you know, he will uh, railroad it, elevate it, uh, make it more poetic and lyrical. And, you, you know, the writing process in this story, um, the, the, you know, it's it, it, the, the, the trick with the story is to make it feel like it's one voice and that it's, you know, even if you were writing it by yourself, you want to have it feel like it's one voice and one continuous thought and things and ideas build on each other and um, it was really a terrific learning experience to sort of witness that up close. And it was up very close. Um, I got a, uh, uh, a notification on my phone at one point that my voicemail was 98% full. And I looked at the voicemail <laughs> and it said, Tom, 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 my mom, my dad, Tom, Eric Neal, our editor, Tom, Tom, Tom. So, um, you know, it was, it was a terrific process. It painful at times, but that's how it goes. And that's, you know, that's why Tom uh, Juneau is, you know, a spectacular writer because he grinds and, you know, it's it's really something. Tom, I think you can walk out now. That's uh, that's the standing ovation. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was fun. I mean, there was, but there was, you know, I mean, I think that the, any time that there's um, two writers working on a story. I mean, I don't think it's it's surprising that that it required a number of drafts because it, it's you know I mean it's essentially a conversation. I mean it's a conversation conversation that is carried out through multiple drafts. I mean you know I would I would write something I would send it to Seth. Seth would write something or add something and and send it back to me and and it just kept on going back and forth like that. So that's really why there was, I mean, the element of revision, I think was, was central to the whole process. So sticking with this, this, uh, idea, this notion of, of building on each graph and, and building on the ideas and making it flow from one point to another, it felt to me like by the time Belichick shows up in that story, it's, it's almost like an inevitability, you know, you've built this case, but obviously Brady is not completely in control of his own fate. Um, Walk me through how you guys wanted to introduce him into this story, because again, as you point out in so many ways, there, there's a lot of other factors here that control Tom Brady's destiny uh, beyond beyond Tom Brady. Yeah, uh, you know, Belichick 
is literally and metaphorically the reality <laughs> check on it all. Yeah. And, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. you know, he represents not only his own methodology, which is just as, as successful as Tom's, um, but he represents the game of football in a lot of ways because more than anybody, he kind of knows when that tipping point has been reached that only he and maybe nobody else in, in the world can see on a player. Right. And so, you know, there is this inherent tension and collision course within the Patriots building about how long Tom's going to play and how long he's going to play for the Patriots and how long he might play for Bill Belichick. And um, that, to me, um, is as fascinating as anything that he said in the book because, you know, you, you pick up the book and you read it and you go through it and it's really something. And, you know, we've tried to build the story by setting the stakes early but also just showing you what his day is like. You know, he, he talks a lot about what he does each day, and we wanted to, like, show you, give you a glimpse into that. And, you know, there's a reality on Sundays. And um, I think that, you know, we wrote about that with the Belichick part of it, but then we also continued it in that there's a reality beyond the field in terms of long-term brain injury. And then there's the reality actually during the minutes of the game. Right in which all of the players who are devotees of the TB12 method this year have been hurt. Right, right. Well, one of the most interesting things um, of about our, our communication with Tom was that, you know, playing forever, playing until he's 45, playing beyond the limit really established by anyone else is, you know, is very much part of the book. But playing forever for Bill Belichick is definitely not part of the book. That is really, you know, like how long he wants to play for the Patriots, you know, is never is never brought up in the book. But it is one of the things that we we um, one of the questions that we asked and one of the answers that he he gave us. And I thought that was, you know, one of the more powerful and kind of humanizing things that he says. He, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, I'd like to play. I'd like to play, you know, for the Patriots forever or until the end of my career, but I'm not so naive to think that I won't wind up somewhere else. So staying with, with Brady and his sort of mindset, I guess you could say for a minute, for me, the thing that I, I, I took away from this and Seth, you and I were talking about this as we walked up is that there's a lot of things that he says in the book or either in talking with you guys that, feel incredible or naive or in, maybe even insane in some ways, but he's clearly buying into something here. And, you know, this notion that Tom Brady is, you know, more than a man and less than a God, um, given all the reporting and everything that you've done around this, you know, what do you think? Is this something that he truly is believing in and that is going to change his career? Or is this just some sort of system that he's going to try to use to get him to the next thing after his playing days are done? I think it's both. And I think that, you know, if he has any doubt about this, I'm not sure that Tom in general feels doubt, but <laughs> um, if he has any doubt, he has put his chip so far on the table that it would be kind of an epic collapse if he ever disavowed his own method. And I think it goes back to what Tom mentioned at the beginning, and that's the thing that he, he realized right away about the story is that, you know, Tom is the test case for this, and he makes the case in his book. He says, if you want proof that it works, I'm the proof. And to transcend football, and to, he has to play it. 
And that's a really, really dangerous thing that we know because we don't know how Tom's story ends. and We don't know what he looks like in 15 years, despite our cover's best effort to uh, to portray it. Um, but I, I think that, to me, is the most fascinating aspect of it all because he sees himself playing for into his mid-40s, and he sees TB12 centers around the country and strip malls like you would see at Gold's Gym. One of the one of the titles uh, I think of one of the earlier drafts was in fact you know the believer. Um, I think that that he um, has a chance to be a Tony Robbins type of character, not because you know his personality on stage is so ebullient or even interesting, but he brings a level of determined belief to everything he does and says. I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't think that he is he is cynical. I think he is he's a hard person in a lot of ways, a hardened person, but I don't think he's a cynical person because I think he he has that gift of belief. I, I, it's it's always been my feeling about Tom that he not only um is a good salesman, but he is good at getting sold too, which huh. I think is you know one of the reasons that that he um, winds up with in the company of guys like Tony Robbins and Alex Guerrero. Yeah, yeah. Tom Brady feels no doubt. He feels no pain. Uh, he is beyond these earthly possessions. Uh, last question. So, in ending this piece, as you just alluded to, Seth, you know the story is still ongoing, and so what is the thing that you wanted to leave readers with? And in, in in ending this piece? Is it a question? Is it a conclusion about where Tom Brady and his career are going? Um, you know, I'm going to let Tom speak to that a little bit more. I think that the idea was that there's a reality there and that, right. um, you know, a lot of these players who have bought into Tom's methods are not as lucky as Tom is when it comes to injuries. And he, of course, disavows luck in his, um, in his book. And I think that, you know, it's playing with this idea that he is fighting against a game that always wins. And we don't know how the story ends, but, you know, it might take everybody down before it takes him. Yeah, to me, to me, the, the, the image at the end is of him being alone. We, um, he wants to start a really like, like a mass movement Um a pliability movement, a um, a way to cheat age movement, but it's I think entirely possible that that movement applies only to him. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Justin, and thanks you, Seth. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash DoubleTruck. That's all one word. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Kyrie Williams. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Michael Rabier, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. Remember, if you like what you are hearing, you can subscribe to Double Truck Stories on your favorite podcast player. I'm Justin Ellis, and thank you for listening.